This is Mystic Takeaway, dishing up extraordinary real-life stories to inspire wonder and nourish the soul. I'm your host, Elisa Graff. Today's episode features Jewel Kuchera of Cincinnati, Ohio, who shares touching stories of how her husband let her know he was still around after his death. Good to have you with us. It's so nice to have you on the podcast, Jewel. You've been a wonderful mentor for me, so I'm really happy you're here. I am honored to be here. You've been a fantastic contributor in the pod workshop, and I'm so glad we connected and that we can have this conversation now. Yes, me too. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm Jewel Kuchera. I currently live in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I've been here for four years. I grew up in New Jersey. I went to undergrad and grad school in Minnesota, and then I spent most of my life in Chicago. My career was in training and development, inclusion and diversity, and corporate social responsibility. And about two years ago, I was delighted to discover that I could retire early, so I did. Wow, that must be wonderful. <laughs> it, it is. It's wonderful. Because my friends ask me, so how is it? And I say, my time is at my discretion. And I know that's a huge privilege and I'm grateful for it. I think a lot of people wonder what it would be like to have all this free time. I mean, leisure is a luxury, right, in the world we live in today, but it's so important and most of us don't have enough time for that. So what I do with my time is I write a weekly blog. I've been blogging since 2009. I have a bi-weekly podcast, Hard Times and Hope, which you thankfully have been on. Thank you so much. Oh, it's such a pleasure. I'm currently working on a novel. I'm in a training class about how to write novels. I teach part-time at the University of Cincinnati, and I am the board secretary for Homebase, which is a not-for-profit that serves community development corporations in the greater Cincinnati region. Wow. So, so retirement hasn't been slow for you. <laughs> no. In fact, if it were, I couldn't stand it. Anymore. Right. Of course. Of course. But to be doing all the things you want to do, that's yes. so special. Every one of them is chosen, and that is special, yeah. Oh, wow, beautiful. It sounds like you're serving, you know? It's all about really giving back to your community in so many mm -hmm. ways. Yeah, and the giving back also gives to me. So yeah, it's of course. a mutual benefit. Yeah. I'm a daughter, a sister. I've been a wife twice, once divorced, once widowed. I usually have a dog, but she passed away last December. So oh, now I'm, I'm sorry to hear solo. That. Yeah, but her departure was really a beautiful experience in a sad way. And it was it was okay. It was her time. My hobbies, my probably my favorite thing to do is to walk outside with my camera or my phone and take photographs, close-ups of nature that focus on either color or geometry. But I just like taking pictures because it's fast. It's a lot quicker than painting. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes, I do too. I don't have the patience to sit and paint or draw something. But but there's so many beautiful things to snap pictures of. Yeah. My husband always makes fun of me because, you know, we'll have beautiful tulips and when the light hits them in the in the mm. living room on the table, I'm like, oh, God, and I take 10 pictures. He refuses to be responsible for my photo archive. <laughs> it's like, there's nothing but nature pictures on it. <laughs> what I love about digital photography is you can take 10 pictures of tulips. Yeah. You're not worried about you just shot up a third of the roll. Right, exactly. It's just nice. So wonderful. It's beautiful that you get to do the things you enjoy in life. I do, I do. yeah. 
Would you like to share a little bit about your own spiritual beliefs or background or anything like that? Oh, sure. Yes. How was I raised? I was raised with nothing <laughs> other than Christmas trees, Easter bunnies. I still remember in grade school when the teacher asked why we celebrate Easter. And I raised my hand. I was so excited. And she called on me. I said, it's the Easter bunny coming. And she said, no, that's wrong. Oh, like, no. <laughs> did you go to a parochial school or something? I no. did not. But she obviously had a belief that she wanted to make clear to the class. But I, that was the first time I heard about something, you know, the whole crucifixion, resurrection. I'm like, whoa, that's interesting. <laughs> and fourth grade. Something like that, yeah. sometime in grade school. Wow. Yeah. And then what happened was my family was not a very happy family. And when I went to college, I was looking for a place to be and for some structure and somebody to tell me how to live because I knew I didn't want to live the way my family was. So I got involved with this really friendly church, <laughs> but it was an extremely fundamentalist very dictating. We could might have crossed over into cults because we had to live together. We had functions six days a week. You couldn't get married unless the elders gave permission. So wow. I say, I don't call it a cult. Make up your own mind. But that gave me a lot of religious instruction. Oh, yeah. You, you got a crash course. <laughs> and now it's just, I feel like I've done a lot of time in church and church service. And what I believe is I'm not sure. You know, I'm not sure what there is. I do believe there's some power bigger, greater than ourselves. I like Buddhism and the idea or the teaching or philosophy of non-duality, that we are not separate, and that anytime we make somebody them and other, we have problems because they're not. We are all us and interconnected with one another and with the planet. So that's where I am right now in terms of my spiritual beliefs. Well, that's beautiful. I, I totally hear you and I get you there 100%. Actually, my parents also raised me to be pretty open-minded about things. They had left their own family's religions. Uh, my father was raised Episcopalian and my mother was raised Catholic. I remember having conversations with my parents when I was maybe five or six about reincarnation. <laughs> so that was helpful in lots of ways for me just to sort of be raised in an open way, you know. So it sounds mm -hmm. like the same for you. You kind of get to sort of choose for yourself what makes sense to you, what means something to you. Well, why don't we get straight to it and you can tell us however you'd like to start. I think we'll start in Nuego. Trent and I weren't legally married, but we had had a private ceremony with a person we respected. We wore rings. We called each other husband and wife, uh, but legally we weren't married. And that kind of matters for how his death plays out. He lived in Battle Creek, Michigan, which is a town that is in depression after the cereal companies left and moved their productions to Mexico. You mean like Kellogg's? And... Kellogg's, Post, General Mills, they okay. all left just a very small core in Battle Creek and then sent the bulk of the operation and the money to Mexico. Outsourcing. So mm -hmm. I knew I did not want to live in Battle Creek. Yeah. And I lived in Chicago and he did not want to live in Chicago. He's an outside guy. Just can't. And he might as well go there. His father used to beat him regularly and would even attack him while he was sleeping. So he did not feel safe inside a house. He felt vulnerable in a house. Oh, so a yeah. city made him feel really vulnerable. So he needed to be outside. So what we did was he had a daughter 
and she was, I think, 13 at the time, we decided we would move to Nuego, which is a smaller community town in Michigan. It's up near Grand Rapids. It's on the Muskegon River. It's a huge tourist destination for trout fishing. So not really tourists, fisher people, trout fisher people. And it's just a beautiful place. So we moved there. And after we had been there a while, his daughter moved in. And at the time, I have my own consulting business. So I'm going back and forth to Chicago because that's where all my clients are. So most of the time I can work in Nuego, but every now and then I need to go into the city to see my clients. So one day I'm driving back from my work. And it was strange because usually I didn't leave till about five o'clock, but I'd been there for most of the week and it wrapped up early. I left early. And I always called Trent when I got to Grand Rapids because then I was 45 minutes away. So I called him, said, hey. And there was just something about his voice. He just sounded bothered about something. And we had been talking about something and I wanted to tell him that I changed my mind and I agreed with him. And he goes, let's just wait till you get home. I said, okay. Well, when I got home, I pulled into the driveway and there's a neighbor teenager, Justin, who used to help Trent because there was just a lot of work to do. We lived on 20 acres. They were oh my gosh. chopping wood and building things. And wow. anyway, so I pull into the driveway. It's this long gravel and I drive in and Justin runs up to the, the car and says, Trent's down and he's blue. So I get out of the Jeep. I run over and the Trent's on the driveway and he is blue. He's like Robin's egg blue, but just his face. And I remember thinking, if you were on the roof and you fell off, I'm going to be really mad at you. But um, I had been trained in CPR, so I, you know, do the ABC. There's, I don't see any air breathing, no pulse, but I thought, okay, so I start CPR. I learned later Justin had already tried CPR. And he calls 911 and they come and they do their thing. And it was so strange because talking about dogs, we had a dog, his name was Nemo. He was a 90 pound (laughs) big dog. And when Trent was on the ground, Nemo was sitting right by his head, just sitting right there, not moving. And Nemo just sat there while I was doing the CPR, while the emergency people came. And when the emergency people came, they took over doing the CPR. And I was talking to Trent throughout all of this. I was saying, because one of the things he used to say was, why can't I have you both? Meaning, why can't I have you and Jenna, his daughter? And she had moved out three months earlier. She'd gone back to live with her mom. And what I said to him when he was lying down on the ground, and I don't know how this one EMT person thought about this because he got there first. So it was just him and me for a long time because we live way back in the woods. It's hard to find. So I said to Trent, well, he's out. Um, If you come back, you come back all the way because you and I can't live with you in a bed. I knew he couldn't, he couldn't live like that. And then I said, if you go, you can have us both. And then at one point, the rest of the EMT people come and Nemo, who had been sitting quietly all this time, suddenly bolts up, takes one of their pieces of equipment in his mouth and runs away with it. And one of the EMT people says, get that dog out of here. 
And so I get up and go running after the dog and wondering, how am I ever going to catch this dog? I've never caught this dog in my life. But Nemo must have stopped because I was able to get a hold of his collar and take him into the house. When I came back and looked at Trent with all the people around him working on him, I could tell he wasn't there anymore. Mm. And I said, he's gone. Yeah. And they said, no, ma'am, there's still hope. But I mm. knew he was gone. So he was gone. And what happened was his heart had literally broken apart. He had a dissection of the aorta. The medical examiner called me the next night. They had to do an autopsy because it was an unwitnessed death. Even mm. though his actual death was witnessed, his falling over that preceded the death was not witnessed. So they had to make sure there was no foul play. So the medical examiner called me, and I was grateful that he called me because he didn't have to legally, but he did. And he said, a lot of times when we do an autopsy, we can't tell the cause of death. He said, but this time it was totally clear. He had a dissection of the aorta. The aorta is the vessel that runs through the heart, and it tore. It came apart. And when that happens, the blood that's in the heart fills the pericardium that surrounds the heart, and the heart cannot beat. <sighs> so it did not matter that you did CPR or didn't do CPR. Even if it had happened in the emergency room of a hospital, nobody could have saved him. Yeah. And that was such a relief to hear. And I told Justin that because learning that you know he was there first and he'd done CPR and he could have felt guilty. And Justin, there's nothing you could have done. So he died. And we were tremendously in love. It was just, it was so wonderful. I remember when I introduced Trent to Ginger and her husband, we were at a restaurant, Trent gets up to use the restroom and Ginger looks over at me and I look back like, okay, what do you think? And she said, he adores you. And I'm like, oh, he does. <laughs> so how do I know he still watches over me? <laughs> because I'm convinced that he does. So there are four stories I have, the arm sweater, the car window, the hall light, and the blue box. Okay. Trent had blonde hair and he had very curly blonde hair on his arms. And when we slept in bed, he was off to my left. And when my arm laid next to his, it felt like my arm was in a sweater. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> because it's so, you know, it's all. Yes, yes, yes. So, so one day I was walking around a couple weeks after he died and I realized my arm feels like it's in a sweater, <laughs> just my ah. left arm. And I thought, isn't that strange? Wow. And I thought, maybe Trent's reminding me. And I thought, no, Jewel, don't be a weirdo. You, you know, just whatever. You probably just got something going on with your arm. So I'd gone to Chicago for a client work. I'd come back, picked up the dog from the person who kept it. Well, I went out of town. And as I'm driving down M82, which is the main road through Nuevo, it's a 60 mile an hour road. And I'm driving 60 miles an hour. And all of a sudden, the arm sweater disappears. And I say, I can't feel you anymore. And I say it. <laughs> you say it out loud in the car. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, loud in the car. And as soon as I say that, the car starts to die. Like, there's nothing happening when I'm pushing on the gas. Oh, I'm like, wow. And I said, please let me get home. I have to get home. I Please let me get home. So what happened was I could go, the maximum speed was 30 miles an hour. <laughs> so... <I'm, laughs> I put my flashers on. I'm like, okay, you know, pass me. And I'm just tooling my way. I had about four or five miles to go. I get home. That was a Friday. Justin came over on Saturday. I said, Justin, can you take the car to the shop? There's like a shop two miles away. He goes, what's wrong with it? I said, I won't go faster than 30. So you won't be able to go faster than 30. But 
Anyway, so Justin takes it, comes back a couple hours later and says, nothing wrong with the car. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what did you think at that moment when, when he said that to you? I was like, that was the first moment where I went, I think it's Trent. I think it was Trent. What else could it be? He's protecting you. He's flying along with you. You remember that little saying that people say sometimes, you know, don't fly faster than your angels, something like that, right? I never heard that, but I like it. Yeah. So that was probably the first time I started to think that, yeah, Trent might be still around. (laughs) And and actually, I, I wondered if he was sort of going through some process on the other side where he could no longer be as close and do the arm sweater. I don't know. I kind of wondered. How long, anyway. you, how, how long did you feel the arm sweater? How long was that going on for? For about a month. Wow. <laughs> a month just right after his death for about a month. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't notice it right away because I was It's really like he was holding shock. your hand. It's like he was like... It was, his, yeah, yeah. Back in bed together. Oh. Yeah. Sleeping together. So that's the arm sweater. The car window. All right. So now it's December and his death is really... I'm in serious grief. I just, ugh. And because I had my own company and because I'd already made all the money I needed to make for the year, I didn't take any more new jobs, which was nice to be able to do. But then I had a project in Chicago. So I thought, oh yeah, it's a good client. I got to go back. So I go to Chicago and it's December and I, I drive back and Nuego, we got a lot of snow. In that December, we had gotten six feet of snow, and there had been snow the week I was gone. Six feet of snow. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and I was worried about getting to my road because they don't always plow it. And fortunately, when you live in a small town, everybody knows what happened. My neighbor who knew Trent had died took his tractor plow and plowed, so I got home. That's beautiful. Oh, I love that. Community is so important. (laughs) It is. It is. I felt so taken care of. And he did that all winter long. Wow. Yeah. But I got home and I just didn't want to go in the house because Trent wasn't there. I used to love coming home to see Trent and he wasn't there. And so I got as far as out of the car, but I couldn't bring myself to go in. So I just walked in circles around the car Mm -hmm. for I don't know how long. And then I said, Jewel, you got to get it together and go inside. You're going to fall over and die of hypothermia and nobody's going to find you. So get your act together. So I went inside. Then the next trip to Chicago, I'm driving home and it's a toll road. And at the time I didn't have the eye pass. So I roll down my window, toss in my coins and I go to roll up the window and it won't roll up. I'm like, oh no, 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 no. (laughs) Because it's under 40 degrees and if you've ever driven with the window down when it's that cold, it's yeah. awful. The, yes. the wind chill is it's much, in minus territory. It's much colder, yeah. Yeah, and I'm jiggling the control, and I'm jiggling, and I'm trying doing different things. And at big risk, I say, okay, try putting all the windows down and bringing them all back up. They all go down, but the driver's window does not come back up. So I pull off, I open my suitcase, I put on every article of clothing I have in the suitcase. I take a shirt or sweater and I wrap it around my head as a hat. I find a notebook that I can sort of use to block the wind while I put the heater on full blast and I get home. When I get home, I tear into the house because I am freezing. And as soon as I got in, I thought, if you wanted to make somebody go in the house, making their window not go up is a really good plan. (laughs) So the next day, Justin comes over 
And I say, because it's Saturday again, I said, uh, Justin, instead of working on the shed, could you look at the Jeep and see what's wrong with it? The driver's side window won't come up. So he goes out, he comes back about 15 minutes later. It's up. I go, what did you do? He goes, I jiggled it. I'm like, I jiggled it. <laughs> yeah. So that's when I went, okay, I do think that was Trent. But here's the one that I tell people. And this is usually often the only one I tell because it's just so clear cut. So at this time, I've sold our house. I didn't want to sell our house, but uh, I wasn't there enough. I was doing a lot of work in Chicago. I couldn't manage it by myself. And we had 14 cord of wood. Split. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I'm glad you know how much that is. <laughs> well, one Friday I came back and the wood was gone. What? Somebody had come and not only was the wood gone, they'd left just the little pile that we had by the house. So people steal wood. People steal wood. They steal wood, but they had to be there for a couple of days because not only did they steal the wood, they also chainsawed the trees that Trent had cut down and was going to build a cabin out of. Wow. And all that remained there was sawdust. So that was my clue that, Jewel, you can't keep this. You've got to you got to go. You can't take care of it. You're not here. So I sold the house. I moved to a condo in Park Ridge, Illinois. And the condo had a hall light and the hall light had a switch by the front door and one in the living room. So you turn it on or off either place. On June 3rd, which is Trent's daughter's birthday, I said, oh, I got to call Jenna. And the hall light came on. By itself. By itself. And I said, I know that's you. And and the hall light went off. Oh. <laughs> and I said, I love you. And the hall light came back on. Oh, see that? Wow. That's amazing. God, that's so beautiful. What did you feel when that all happened? Your heart must have just been so warmed by that experience. It was combination warmed and you got to call Jenna. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> it was both. <laughs> right, right, of yeah. course. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow, that, that's yeah. beautiful. A friend of mine, when her mother died, um, there was a room in her house where her mother had stayed for a while before she was in a care facility. And um, she had all of her mother's furniture in that room. It was set up for her to be most comfortable. And on the dresser was a little tray that had her mother's perfume bottles on them. And Mary used to know when her mother had been there because the tops would be off the bottle. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, and there was nobody there that could possibly, you know, she didn't have anybody visiting her and there was nobody who could have gone into the room to do that. So these are little clues, just a reminder. I'm, I'm still around, you know, so. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I thought you were going to say there was the scent of perfume, but the fact that the tops were off the bottles. <laughs> Even more physical. Yeah. Wow. Well, probably the biggest one that involved other people, because so far all of these just involve me, right? It's just me yeah. having this experience. But after I was in the condo, I decided I wanted to be in a house. So I moved to a house in Morton Grove, Illinois. And I lived there for a few years. And then my job, I needed to be in Cincinnati. And so I rented out my house to a friend's son. And my friend really liked my house. Her son really liked my house. And I believe his partner did too. So I was just going to rent to them, but then I realized I need to move to Cincinnati. I got to sell the house and they wanted to buy it. And his name is Les, Les and Barbara. So we make a plan. They're going to buy it. I'm packing things up. And because of the nature of it, they're already living there. They're renting it. 
my things are just in the basement and I moved out the rest of my things. But I said, you know, I'm going to leave cleaning supplies and stuff like that and you can ditch them or use them whatever you want. Well, there was one thing in the basement that I hadn't moved because I couldn't lift it. Plus, I didn't know where I would put it in my condo in Cincinnati. It was a blue wooden box that Trent's grandfather had built that he kept his tools in. Mm. And Trent kept his tools in there too after Trent died and, you know, garage sale, the tools. But I kept the box and I used it as a chest of remembrance, essentially. So it had Trent's books about bow fishing and stalking the wild mushroom (laughs) and (laughs) notes that he had sent me and cards and photographs and things like that. So that's all in the basement. And I don't move the box because I can't lift the box. So I take some things out of the box that I want. I take our wedding rings, but there's just too much there. And I thought, I can't deal with this and I can't lift it. So I'll just leave it. So Les calls me and and it's getting close to the close date for when we're going to transfer the sale. And he said, we want to talk to you about buying the house. And I could tell something was wrong in his voice. And I said, okay, let's talk. And he said, no, we want to talk to you in person. I'm like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) So I drive back from Cincinnati and they bring me in and Les and Barbara both look very worried. And I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, they're not going to buy it. Something's wrong. And Les says, there's something happening in the house. And I haven't told you about it because I didn't want to worry you. But what's happening is Barbara is seeing a man. He's a big man. I'm like, yeah, Trent was a big man. Um, And he said, and it frightens her. So we had our priest come over and scatter holy water, but he still appeared. And he said, and one day I came home and she was sitting on the couch doing the rosary. She was so frightened. We had a psychic come over. He said the psychic came in, walked straight through the living room, down to the basement, and said there's a wall of energy coming from this electrical box in the corner to this blue wooden box. Oh, wow. Yeah. And Les's mother, they'd called over his mom, too, and she was there, and she goes, we have to open the box. So they open the box, and they see stuff that tells them it's Trent's box. It's an important box. And so Les says... We think he doesn't want us to buy the house. And I say, uh-uh, he's not mad at you. <laughs> he's mad at me. He doesn't want me to leave the box behind. Yeah. And I said, but Les, I can't lift it. And Les said, I can lift it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, and he said, how come he never shows himself to me, only to Barbara? And I said, he doesn't trust men. He would never show oh, himself to right, you. right. He only trusts women. The interesting thing is, of course, that some people have a capacity to see such things more mm-hmm. so than others, right? To... Yeah, that makes sense to me, too, because Les is very much in the physical world where I could see that Barbara would be. Anyway, so we moved the box out, and Trent, is his body is buried in Battle Creek, Michigan. And I knew that wasn't what he wanted, what, but you can't have what he wanted. <laughs> what he wanted is, was like one of those Viking funeral pyres. Oh! But... <laughs> I just saw a film where somebody went all the way to Norway for one of those experiences. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, that's what he wanted. So I decided that it was time to let go. He'd been dead at this point long enough that I had the things I wanted and the other things I would burn in a remembrance ceremony. Mm. 
but I live in a condo. <laughs> There's oh, no yeah. to burn anything. <laughs> so the box is just hanging out in the back of my car because I can't lift it out. My friend Aaron says, come over to my house. We'll have a burn party. So Aaron and Stephanie and I go to Aaron's house and and we go to her backyard and her fire pit and we start pulling out the things. And she asked me to tell them about the different things. I'm telling them and we're burning them. And then we get to the box and I really don't want to burn the box, but I don't have a place for it. It doesn't seem like it should be stuck in a, a storage thing. And Aaron says, I'm going to ask you a question. I don't want to intrude and I want you to do what you want. And she said, I love that box. I would love to have it. And I said, I would love for you to have that box. And so she has this lovely little screen porch and the box is on her screen porch. And the the wedding rings are in the river in Falmouth, Kentucky. Oh, beautiful. And it just, yeah, it just feels like everything now is where it's supposed to be. And Les yeah. and Barbara are happy in the house. Oh, good. So nothing happened afterwards. No. No, it all quieted down. Oh, yeah. And they had lights going on and off and stuff like that. Yeah. They did? Oh, yeah, no they kidding. Did. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the rings in the creek. It makes me think of the Viking experience, right? Is that what, yeah. what you did it for? I did it because he loved rivers. He said, "You never go down the same river twice." He oh. loved. We loved to kayak together, and I didn't want our rings in a. They had been in my nightstand drawer, and I thought that's not the right place for them. Yeah. But I didn't think burying them was right. I knew they wouldn't burn, and I thought, "Oh, the river." So I had bought some land in Kentucky. It's just some open. I need land. I can live in a condo, but I need some just a place to walk out and be outside. And it's in Falmouth, Kentucky. And there's a river that goes through Falmouth. And I threw them in that river. Oh, how beautiful. And what have you done with the property there? Have you got a little spot that you visit? I visit, but there's no, the only structure is a barn that's falling down. Yeah. So I, I plan to build like a little screen porch, but I want it to be wild. I used to walk in a field when I was a kid, just an empty field. And I like having empty, wild places to walk. I don't have that. You yeah. know, if you live in a city, everything's groomed. Nothing's yes. wild. Yes. So you're still obviously healing. It's something we all take with us into our lives. And it takes time. Yeah, there's always going to be that place. I don't want to say hole, but there's like a spot. There's yeah. always going to be a little empty. There's a place that he's not. I'm past the part where I'm sad about it. I just feel like... Everything happened as it was meant to happen. He left when he was ready to leave. Thank you so much for sharing these beautiful stories. Oh, you're welcome. It was fun. Thank you for listening because there's not many people that I <laughs> you can talk to about these kind of experiences. My guest, Ju Kuchera's podcast is called Hard Times and Hope. You can find more of her work at julkuchera.com. That's J-U-L-E-K-U-C-E-R-A.com. You've been listening to Mystic Takeaway. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider subscribing.